The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're continuing our series uh, in which we're looking at the church, what the church is. And tonight I would like to talk about uh, baptism and specifically uh, what believer baptism is all about. Why the church uh, has seen this as important, why Baptists in particular uh, see it as important. And I'd like to begin by asking you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to see a few things uh, that are said about the church and then we're going to go through the book of Acts and pick up some information and also in 1 Corinthians about baptism and then sum it all up toward the end. Uh, I've found that you can't assume anything. You know, this is a Baptist church, but uh, I don't know that necessarily everybody here uh, would be able to articulate what it means to be Baptist on the issue of water baptism. It's surprising, but it's true. Uh, that we believe that water baptism is to be reserved for those that have made a profession, a creditable profession of faith in Christ. Now, we might be able to articulate that. I think you'd certainly be surprised to find out that we accepted somebody, let's say, from the Methodist Church without making them go through that water baptism first. I don't think that was ever done in the past. Brevard, is that true? Has anyone ever transferred over here to, from the Methodist Church without being baptized first? I don't think so. Well, that's all right. But... Uh, now that, now, that you're, now that you're listening, we're, zoom, we're zooming in here, and we basically, for the most part, uh, we have, I think, it's possible that we have lost our thread on this particular thing, that we don't necessarily understand what water baptism was meant, and meant to be, and, and all the more how it points uh, to a higher uh, view of the church than was had before. Uh, Baptists have had a high view of the church, and water baptism is that entryway, that doorway into the church uh, for believers. I think there are three safeguards to a believer's church, as we have talked about before. Now, just to uh, recap what we've said already, the church, according to 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Do you see that? It talks there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the church is the pillar and foundation of the, church, of the truth. Now what that means is that the church is here to represent the word of God, the truth of God, uh, to the world. And if we have lost our grasp of the truth, if we are an impure uh, church, if we are mingled and mixed with believers and unbelievers, we cannot be the pillar and foundation of the truth in the world. And the world needs the truth, doesn't it? The world needs the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what the church is called to be. First, P, uh, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 makes it very, very plain that we are called to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. Also look, if you would, at Ephesians chapter 3. And beginning at verse 8, there Paul says, actually starting at verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities uh, in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So what he's saying there is that God has a hidden wisdom that he intends to make known through the church. A manifold wisdom, a varied wisdom, a beautiful wisdom. And that wisdom is in how God put the church together. Now we've already talked about the body of Christ for many weeks. We talked about spiritual gifts and how each person, each member of the church is gifted in a marvelous way and how the whole thing is put together. The manifold or the varied wisdom of God is seen in the church. But if the church does not continue to be a believer's church, if the church is diffused or diluted uh, and no longer uh, can represent the truth in the world, then no longer can we be the pillar and foundation of the truth. We have no longer represented uh, in the spiritual realms, he says here, the manifold wisdom of God. And so Baptists have upheld that water baptism is meant for believers only. Now, you might say, what's so striking about this? Well, realize that you as Baptists are in the minority among those who call themselves Christians. You're actually in the great minority. Most of, pe most of the people around the world who call themselves Christians believe in infant baptism. I know that for myself, I came through the Catholic Church. I was baptized when I was an infant, and I don't remember anything about that. Uh, and uh, I don't consider it to be genuine baptism. I came to Baptist convictions uh, when I was 19 years old. As, as an adult, as I began to realize what the scripture taught. But it wasn't until I had interactions with a group called the Boston Church of Christ. I don't know if you realize that we have a group similar to that right in our own region, the Triangle Church, the Church of Christ, and they believe that without water baptism, you can't go to heaven. Well, we're going to talk about that tonight. But uh, I began to study and to look at after these things, and it was specifically what the Bible says in the book of Acts that helped me to understand water baptism. So I'd like to ask that you turn there, and we're going to just take a, a journey through the book of Acts and try to understand what water baptism is all about. Now, as I said earlier, the, the Baptists upheld the vision of regenerate church membership, that we are meant to be a regenerate church made up of believers. And there are three safeguards specifically to this. Three safeguards to regenerate church membership. Now, we have seen that there is this invisible church. That's something that you become a member of the instant you're justified through faith in Christ. The instant that you hear the call, the internal call of the gospel by the Spirit, you become a member of the invisible uh, church of Jesus Christ. And you don't need to transfer your membership. You don't have to send your letter. It's just taken care of for you. You're a member of that invisible church. That is the true church, the bride of Jesus Christ. But then there is the visible church, and the visible church has a local address, doesn't it? It's a, it? It should be near where you are, and there's a group of people that recognizes you, and that you fellowship with, you perhaps even covenant to be part of that group. That is the local church. And what the Baptists have said is that as much as possible, the members of that local church, the visible church, should be made up of people who are members of the invisible church, namely they are truly born again. Now there are three safeguards to that. Number one is believer baptism believer baptism. What that means is that in order to enter uh, the Baptist church, you had to be able to give a creditable profession of faith in Jesus Christ, creditable to the body, creditable to the people of God. And so that was the first safeguard. The last safeguard is church discipline. We're going to talk about that at another time uh, soon. Uh, but basically the idea is if somebody begins to live like a pagan, if they dig their, their heels in and will not submit to biblical truth, if they will not repent uh, based on some sinful pattern that's been discovered in their lives, they will not turn. All of us have sinned. The scripture says we all stumble in many ways. But the point is a, an unregenerate person digs in and will not repent when confronted with that issue. And so the church disciplines them. That is the backside of the safeguard 
of uh, Regenerate Church member membership. What is the middle part? We're going to talk about that another time. And that is the ongoing body life of the church. And I believe that's actually a subset of each one of them. Basically, we covenant to live together as believers and to watch over one another in brotherly love, to deal with issues long before they get to the point of needing church discipline. It's a form of discipline. Uh, we're supposed to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. We're supposed to know each other. We're supposed to be able to communicate with each other. We're be, we're, we're be able to see something that's happening in somebody's life. They're starting to drift spiritually. Their hearts are starting to get hard, and we're able to say, hey, what's going on? Long before there are big problems. And so those are the three safeguards to regenerate church membership. And I think our church needs to understand each one of the three. Now, let's start with water baptism and try to understand what the Lord says. Now, as we go through the book of Acts, there's a remarkable mingling together of the themes of water baptism and baptism by the Holy Spirit. And I think that this is specifically uh, done because there is a link between the two. There is a link between the two. You remember what John the Baptist said uh, concerning his own ministry uh, when Jesus came and he was pointed to him. He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, he was preparing the way for him. Well, in contrasting his own ministry to the ministry of Jesus, he said, the difference between us is the nature of our baptisms. I baptize with water for repentance. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The difference between John's ministry, said John, and Jesus' ministry is the nature of their baptisms. But water baptism was upheld by Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus came and was baptized by John the Baptist, physically. He was baptized by him in the Jordan River and John was so stunned. He said, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? And Jesus said, let it be so. Now it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And Jesus was baptized. And then Jesus himself, his disciples were involved in baptism in John chapter 4. And so he was training them in baptism, although the scripture says that he himself did not baptize anyone, but his disciples were. And I think that's very interesting because Jesus was holding back for his baptism. And when was his baptism going to come? The day of Pentecost. He was going to pour out the Holy Spirit, just as John the Baptist said. And so we have a mingling in the book of Acts of water baptism and the baptism with the Spirit. They, they are interwoven back and forth. If you just look, at, look up the word baptism and follow through the book of Acts, sometimes it refers to the Holy Spirit and sometimes it refers to water. And I think the water baptism was meant to symbolize physically what has happened invisibly spiritually to us. Namely, that we were baptized, all of us, by one spirit into one body. We have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have been baptized into this body. Now, I know that other people have a different interpretation of the baptism of the spirit. Some people make a distinction between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. We're not going to talk about any of that tonight. But I do see a link between water baptism physical water baptism, and baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now let's begin at Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. This is Jesus speaking, actually beginning at verse 4. It says, on one occasion, this is after he had risen from the dead, uh, he was spending 40 days with them. He appeared to them, it says, over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, it says, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there the whole thing comes together right at the very beginning of the book of Acts. 
And Jesus upholds what John said. There's a distinction between what John did and what's about to happen to you. John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been to be the disciples? After Jesus ascended to heaven and they were told to wait in Jerusalem for the gift that God had promised, which were coming down from on high, and he'd already told them there, in a few days? That's pretty clear. Sometimes the Bible just says soon, like, behold, I am coming soon. That's in the book of Revelation. Well, soon to God and soon to us are two different things, right? It's been 2,000 years. But here it says, in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so that happened on the day of Pentecost. If you look at Acts 2, verse 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly the sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, we talked about tongues recently, but this is the, the baptism of the Spirit. And they were immediately filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues as the Spirit enabled. Now, at that point, I think the Holy Spirit came very powerfully on Peter, and he preached that great Pentecost sermon. And in a, in a potent way, he preaches the gospel to the members of Jerusalem, people in Jerusalem, and then all the visitors that had come from all of the, um, the nations around. I believe they were all Jews or converts to Judaism. And they'd come there for the, the Feast of Pentecost, the celebration, the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. And many of them heard this, this message, this word, and they uh, believed the message. Look at 2.37. This is Acts 2.37. After Peter had preached this bold sermon, very, very powerful, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now this is key, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So that's probably the clearest statement of believer baptism there. Those who accept the message, those who believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those are the ones who are baptized that day, and 3,000 are added to their number. Now, just stop and imagine the logistics of baptizing 3,000 3, people that day. Incredible. 3,000 baptisms in one day. That's just amazing to me. And yet, uh, the joy and the excitement, too. I mean, that's phenomenal church growth there. To go from 120 to 3,120 or whatever thereabouts in one day, that's incredible and that's exciting. Wouldn't it be great to see something like that here? Are you praying for that? You should ask God to do something like that here. Ask him until he does it. Right, Josh? Let's keep praying until he moves in a mighty way that God would, that we would see people coming to faith in Christ. You would have the opportunity. What would you give to lead somebody to Christ this year? Wouldn't that be something? To have, have an opportunity to lead a neighbor or a co-worker to Christ or a relative, to be able to, to see them get baptized, to give their life to Christ and get baptized, wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that be thrilling? And all the more I think that the, the angels in heaven are rejoicing over one sinner that repents. We could take part in that joy. Oh, I want to make you hungry for it. That's so exciting. I want to be part of a church like that. I want to lead some people to Christ. I'm working on some things. There's a guy that I'm praying for, and a guy at Nathaniel's uh, baptism, I mean, uh, basketball uh, 
practice every week. We're praying for him. And I just want to see these people come to Christ. So let's be hungry for that. But, but notice the point here theologically. Uh, the only people who are baptized are those who have accepted the message. But also notice the commingling here with the, with the Holy Spirit. Believe the message and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we already learned from Romans 8 that as soon as you believe in Christ, you're justified and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everybody gets the gift of the Holy Spirit. So much so that, that Paul can say in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not of Christ. But the water baptism, I believe, was meant to be a physical outward symbol of that transformation that the Spirit's worked within you. So that's Acts chapter 2. Now look down at Acts chapter 8. We're going to see the same thing there. Now remember, the, the theme verse really of, of the book of Acts is Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so there's a certain movement in the book of Acts, isn't there? It starts in Jerusalem, moves out to Judea, and then across that divide into Samaria. And the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along well. And so in Acts chapter 8, beginning at, uh, at verse 9, we see the account of the, of the, um, of the preaching of the gospel. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it started at verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Well, verse 12 is talking about the people of Samaria. When they heard the message, read it again, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So according to 8.12, who got baptized? It's definitely believers. People who hear Philip. People who believe the message. People who receive it. They are baptized. When they believed Philip he, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. It says in verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Keep reading in verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now, this is a very interesting moment in church history, but I think what's happening here is that God wanted to ensure, he wanted to make sure that there would not be the same divide between Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians that there had been culturally between the Jews and Samaritans. So the Samaritan church did not receive the Spirit until the apostles came from Jerusalem. There was just one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There was unity there, and so they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you can see again, believer baptism. Now look at the end of chapter 8. We've got the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip goes and preaches the gospel to the eunuch. And after the eunuch hears the message... Uh, in verse 36, it says, as, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And one of the manuscripts says, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 38, it says, then he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Uh, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And he appeared at Azotus, 
and traveled about preaching the gospel. wonder what that must have felt like. Whoosh. I mean, did you think he saw anything? Is it like flying, do you think? Or was it instantaneous? I mean, that's exciting. Kind of physical spirit travel. I mean, God can do anything. If he wants to do that, he can. But he needed to get from there because he had another evangelistic appointment in Azotus. And so he's traveling about to preach the gospel there. But what's really important is the eunuch. What happened to the eunuch before he was baptized? He heard the gospel and believed. He was saved. And so water baptism, again, applied to a believer in Christ. And then we see the same thing in Acts chapter 10. Now remember, we're moving out, always outward, always outward. We're starting at Jerusalem. We're moving to Judea and Samaria. Now we've got this Ethiopian eunuch. He's just one man, but he's, he's come to Jerusalem to worship, and now he's reading Isaiah the prophet, and he goes back to his home area. And now we're going to move out just to Gentile entirely. And that's the whole conversion in Acts 10 of Cornelius. Now we're not going to go through the whole story, but basically Cornelius was a Roman centurion who was a God-fearer. He was somebody who was near the, near the preaching of the, of the Jewish message. He was near the synagogue. He loved the Jewish people. He loved the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he was a godly man just waiting for the gospel. And so the gospel uh, was preached to him that day by Peter. Uh, the, the Lord sent him a vision of a sheep with a bunch of unclean animals, and he was commanded to eat, and Peter said, no way. Uh, by the way, people never really change, do they? I mean, they can change, but Peter's still saying no to God all the time. No, I'm not going to do it. I'll never betray you, O oh Lord. I, you know, you'll never get crucified. He's always saying no to God. And so even here, he's saying no because he doesn't want to eat these unclean animals. And God made a very clear point to him. He said, what God has made clean, don't call unclean. And so he's about to do a mighty work uh, in a Gentile house. And so don't be afraid to go in that house and preach the gospel. And so he did. And uh, the account of it is at the end of chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, and then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So while he's preaching, suddenly they get the same manifestations there in Cornelius' house, household uh, that the apostles themselves and those in the upper room had received uh, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the Holy Spirit came on them in power, and Peter said, what could stop them from getting water baptism? Do you see a denigration almost there? The, the baptism of the Spirit is what really mattered. Who could refrain then from, from the water baptism? Water baptism is important. They did it. But what really was going on spiritually is what mattered. They were transformed. They were made clean by the believing of the message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Again, we've got this household, Cornelius and all the people, and they heard the message, and they were all baptized with water. And then in Acts 11, he gives an account of this. He gets into huge trouble because he went into the house of a Gentile. And as a Jew, you're not supposed to do that. And so even the Jewish Christians, they were very offended by this. And they basically brought Peter before the tribunal to give an account for himself. And so Peter goes through the, the same thing and uh, describes it in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Now again, in verse 17, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Time and again, this is underscored, isn't it? 
It, it, it almost is bold, highlighted, triple underscored. In every case, it's believers who are receiving baptism time and time again. And so he said, look, you know, God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So who was I to think that I could oppose God? In verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. That's an incredible verse. I mean, that's just so powerful. Now, the Jews would put the stress of the powerful word on the word even, right? Even the Gentiles. But that just shows that they didn't understand the worldwide vision of God in the call of Abraham. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. They'd forgotten that. They got narrow. But God was not going to let them stay narrow. He's going to expand. Even the Gentiles. But I think it's the combination of the word grant and repentance that's so powerful here. So then, God has granted repentance. He's granted it. What do you think the word grant means? It's a gift. It's not something that we can guarantee have or, or that's our birthright or something. It's a gift from God. So then God has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. And to those who have received this gift of repentance unto life, water baptism is the outward and visible symbol of that transformation. It's a repeated point. Now I skipped one very important one, didn't I? And that's Acts chapter 9. Look with me at Acts chapter 9. What happens in Acts 9, the first half? Well, that's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He gets letters uh, so that he can go up to Damascus and see if he can arrest any there who belong to the way, whether men or women, and bring them back as prisoners to Jerusalem. That's what he was going to do. And then suddenly, the sovereign hand of God just came down. The, the light shines around him. He gets knocked to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, he says. Who are you, Lord? <laughs> who are you, Lord? You know who I am. <laughs> I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Well, he's blinded by this vision. He goes in there, and for three days, I think, he fasts and he prays. And God appears to this man named Ananias and says, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him that he might receive his sight. Lord, said Ananias, I've heard about this man. I've heard about him and all the damage he's doing to your believers in Jerusalem. And now he's come here to do the same to us. And then he says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. Boy, is that potent. And Paul did suffer for the name of Christ. And now look at verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you are coming here has sent me so that you may see, see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And then after taking some food, he regained his strength. Again, with Saul of Tarsus, the pattern's the same. He has the vision of the risen Christ. He has time to think about it, time to reflect, time to fast and pray, time to repent and to believe, and he does. He's had the gospel preached to him, he knows. Stephen, I think, preached it very plainly to him. He'd heard the gospel, and uh, he was resisting. It says in one of the later accounts of Saul's conversion, it's hard for you, said Jesus, to kick against the goads, isn't it? So there were these goads pushing him toward faith, and he was kicking, resisting. Well, the resistance dropped that day, and he became a believer in Jesus Christ. He was regenerated. 
and at that moment he was water baptized. So we see a regular pattern. Now look at Acts 16. Beginning at verse 11. This is Paul now that he's going out as a messenger of the gospel, going out to preach the gospel. Remember what God had said to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. So he's going out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he comes to um, Mysia and to Troas, and he doesn't know where to go. The Holy Spirit is resisting any motion in any direction so that finally they're stuck there and they say, okay, what do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? So they're just there. And then at night, Paul has a vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. You remember that? And so they concluded, based on the vision, that God wanted them to cross over the Aegean Sea and go on into Europe, heading, heading uh, westward into Europe, heading eventually toward Rome. But they've got to go to Greece first, and so they're going over there to Macedonia. And where's the first place they arrive? It's Philippi. I've often found it interesting that Paul in his missionary journeys retraces the steps of Alexander the Great. Isn't that interesting? And where does he go? He crosses over the Aegean to the city of his father, Philip of Macedon, and that's the first place the Gospels preach in Europe. Isn't that exciting? And so they go to, to Philippi, and, and what do they find there? But a woman, a, a seller of purple named Lydia, on the Sabbath, verse 13, it says, we went outside the city gate to a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to resp respond to Paul's message. I'll read that again. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Do you understand what that's teaching? God has power to open a heart. And as a matter of fact, you should be praying for that. Paul actually asks prayer for this kind of thing. Pray that our message may run and do splendidly among the Gentiles, he says. What is he praying for? This kind of thing. That God would open people's hearts to the message. And the Lord did open Lydia's heart to the message. What does that mean? She believed it. She became a believer in Jesus Christ, the first European convert there in the city of Philippi. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And then it says, verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, uh, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now here we have one of these household baptisms. Now, it doesn't say that the members of her household also heard the message, believed, and, and then were baptized. It doesn't say that here, but it will say it later concerning the Philippian jailer, very plainly. And so we take that principle and bring it back to Lydia's household as well. And she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord Jesus, you come and stay in my household. And so they did. Let's look at the Philippian jailer later in, in Acts 16. In Acts 16, verse 25 and following, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Could you answer that question, by the way? Could you? If, if, a, if somebody, if, you're, if your boss came in trembling into your, into your office tomorrow and said, Please tell me, what must I do to be saved? You should pray for that. Wouldn't that be exciting? But would you know what to say? But this is a great answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
He's heard the message. He's heard the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And again, it says you and your household. So what that means is the people who hear the message and believe will be saved, and that would include you and your household. Anyone who hears the message uh, in your household will be saved as well as they believe. And in verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in the house. Do you see how it's very clearly spelled out here about his household? Everyone who in the household heard the message. Everyone had the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed. Verse 33, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. It could not be more stressed. And so people who say, well, what about the household baptisms? Lydia, I'm, I concede, it doesn't say very much about what happened to her household, but here it's as clear as it can be. Every single member of the Philippian jailer's household heard the message, and they were baptized, and they believed. Now, we could continue. I would like you to just note, uh, but in the interest of time, in Acts 18, 7 through 11, there's another account, and Acts 19, 1 through 6 as well. So as we go through the book of Acts, we see consistently a pattern of believer baptism, and we see no contrary evidence, ever. There's, there's no example whatsoever of infants being baptized. The closest you could come would be Lydia's household, but I don't think it holds up because in that very same chapter, we've got this household baptism. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll gain a few more key principles on um, baptism to help us understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about baptism. Now, the key point that we've made here is that it is believers who are to be baptized, but we could go beyond that and say, what is baptism? Well, baptism is an outward and visible symbol of an inward transformation that has already occurred. The transformation has to have already occurred before the water is applied, if it's done rightly. Remember, we said to you that there were three marks of a true church of God. The three marks are, number one, the rightly preaching of the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Number two, right administration of the, what they call the sacraments, what we call the ordinances, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper. And number three, the proper application of church discipline. These three things make up a true church, according to the reformers. And so what we have to do is we have to say, what is baptism? What does it symbolize? I think it symbolizes a union that has occurred between us and Jesus Christ by faith. We've heard the message, we've repented, we've believed, and at that moment we are united with him by faith. United with him, and nothing can separate us. Isn't that marvelous? We are united for good, and his death is our death, and his resurrection also our resurrection. And so there's a complete uniting, and so the baptism is a symbol of that. It's also, I believe, a symbol of what the Holy Spirit has done, covered, baptized with the Holy Spirit. You can't see that. But the water baptism, I think, is a symbol of the fact that we were, by one spirit, baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek. And so that's what it is. Well, Paul has to put some fences around it, though. In 1 Corinthians, he helps us to understand what baptism is not. Now, look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13 and following. Now, there's divisions in that church, and they're following different people, different leaders. And, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Paulus, I follow Christ. Those are my favorites. I follow Christ. You know, I have a direct, you know, whatever. We'll talk about that another time. But, you know, I follow Christ. And then he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? All of those questions assume the answer, no, of course not. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. 
so that no one can say you are baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household to Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Wow. What does that teach you about water baptism? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's not required for salvation. Do you see that? If water baptism were required for salvation, then this statement would be ridiculous. Do you see that? It would make no sense. Christ did not send me to, to uh, water baptize, but simply to preach the gospel. It doesn't make any sense if water baptism is required. And some groups like the Church of Christ teach that it is required, that you are not regenerate until the water touches your skin. And I think that 117, 1 Corinthians 117, is a silver bullet that ends that should, at least. It's impossible for this to make any sense if baptism is required. So, baptism is not required for salvation. It's an outward and visible symbol of a transformation. Another thing I want to tell you, look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1 following, 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Very interesting expression. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, take heed lest you fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not tempt you beyond what you're able to bear, but with the temptation will make a way of escape so you can bear up under it. Now what is he saying there? Don't think that baptism guarantees that you're going to heaven. Baptism, chapter 1, is not required for salvation. Chapter 10 is no guarantee of salvation. That's why I believe he uses the expression, they were all baptized into Moses and ate the same spiritual food and drink. He's talking about baptism in the Lord's Supper, isn't he? And just because you had water baptism and just because you're regularly partaking in the Lord's Supper does not mean that you're going to heaven. You have to look to the marks of regeneration. Look to what happens truly in a life that's united with Christ, dead with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised again by the power of the Spirit. That's what you look to, not by the fact that you are simply water baptized. I think Baptists need to hear that, don't they? Baptists need to hear that just because you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, and you were baptized on a certain day, that you are guaranteed that you're going to heaven. That is simply not true. Rather, we are looking for a life, a life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. 
So we've talked tonight about water baptism. We've talked about, uh, uh, made a very clear case, I think, in the book of Acts, that it was done, administered only to those who repented and believed the preached message. It was not meant for infants. It was not meant for the unregenerate. It was meant for believers. We've also seen that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, baptism is not required for salvation. Water baptism is not required for salvation. And in chapter 10, it's no guarantee of salvation. Just because you have water baptism does not mean definitely that you're going to heaven. But rather, it's an outward and visible sign of an inward transformation that has already occurred in your life by the power of the Spirit. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.